You know, so far in my brief pastorate at our church, I've grown increasingly grateful for our willingness to follow the truth of Scripture, even when it makes us uncomfortable. You just think about this uh, series that I've done on something that ought to be really cut and dry, manhood and womanhood. Uh, but we've had to deal with issues in society such as gender confusion and LGBTQ and same-sex attraction. We've looked at how God has made men and how God has made women, how that uh, acts out, if you will, how that applies in marriage, how that applies in uh, the home and the raising of kids. And uh, today we'll wrap up this series. You know, my dream has always been to serve a church that is so devoted to the truthfulness of Scripture and the authority of Scripture and the sufficiency of Scripture that we would be willing to change our traditions or our previous misunderstandings in order to do things God's way. And I believe that our church, Broadview Baptist Church, is on the right path. Here's what I've discovered in my life, and I hope that this rings true of you as well, that I'm absolutely committed to the Bible as the Word of God. And so that means my comfort and my traditions and my habits and my sense of needing to feel like I'm always in control, all of that is secondary to the Bible as the Word of God. And so if I have a conflict in my life between my own habits or my own beliefs and, and what the Bible teaches, on the other hand, well, the Bible wins, and I have to change my beliefs. If I find out that what I previously believed the Bible had taught was, in fact, inaccurate, I have to now change my beliefs, having a more full and true understanding of God's Word. And so I am absolutely committed to the truth of the Bible, to the uh, reliability, the authority of the Bible, the sufficiency of the Bible, and I hope that is true of you as well. And so let's talk about something just completely uncontroversial, something that none of us would ever disagree with one another about, and that is men and women in church. All right, and I say that facetiously because there's a lot of different viewpoints about the role of men and women in church, and we're going to explore today what the Bible has to say. And so there's two questions that we're going to answer today, or at least we'll try to. Number one, what ways has God made available for both men and women to serve Him in church? In other words, in what way can someone serve God in church, whether, I mean, regardless of whether they're a man or a woman? And the second question is, are there any church roles which God restricts to being held by members of only one sex? And so we'll answer both of those questions. Let's tackle the first one first. Let's talk about the ways that whether you are a man or a woman, and I trust that you're one or the other. And I know that you're one or the other. Whether you are a man or a woman, how can you serve God in church? Well, let me just preface this by saying one very important concept that I don't want to overlook, and it's this. God expects men and women to participate actively in church. He expects us to serve Him, whether we're a man or a woman. You see, God gives spiritual gifts both to men and to women. 
And not just one or not just the other. And that means that you, if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, have been gifted by God. And if you've been gifted by God, then coming with that is the expectation that you are to serve God and use that gift for the benefit, the edification of God's family. It also means this. If God has gifted every single one of us, it means that every single one of us is important. Everybody in the church is important. God designed the body of Christ, the church, just like He wants it. God is wise. God is sovereign. And in God's wisdom and God's sovereignty... He knew what he was doing when he made you a man or when he made you a woman. He knew what he was doing. And God knew what he was doing when he designed you in a very specific way to serve him. And so I want you, second big truth, to serve God as a man or woman. And you might say, well, of course, that goes without saying almost, but let me just explain what I mean by this. If you serve God in a, in a way that could be uh, served by either a man or a woman, if, if, if that place of service that you have might be filled by a member of the opposite sex, it, nevertheless, when you serve God, you are serving God as a man or as a woman. Women serve God generally in a very feminine way. Helping people, listening to people, nurturing and caring and enriching, beautifying, caring for people, filling the church with life. I mean, if you, if you don't uh, uh, understand this, uh, sometime when no one's in the building, look at the difference between the men's restroom and the women's restroom. Very, very different. Women take care of their stuff. You know, men, as long as there's the necessary equipment, we don't care what it looks like, right? But women have within them a, a desire to beautify, to bring life, even to the restroom. But bring life wherever they go. That's the way God made women. Men serve God in more of a masculine way, strengthening, standing up for what is right, working sacrificially, guarding the weak, taking initiative to do good for others. But however you serve God, you need to build up the church the very way that God made you, as a man or as a woman. In other words, when you serve God, you don't lose who you are. You don't lose your masculinity or your femininity when you serve God. You serve God just by being you and just by serving him. So let me give you some specific ways that the Bible says that men and women can serve God in church. Number one, men, the Bible says men and women can both participate in the public gatherings of the church. The Bible, in other words, does not call men to meet in a separate room or a separate side of the room than women. We come together for worship. We don't have to be separated in order to worship God. We hear the same teaching from God's Word. We sing songs to God together. We sing songs to one another together about our faith. We read Scripture together. We pray together. Muslims generally separate their sexes at their gatherings 
But Galatians 3.28 says that there is neither male nor female in Christ, that we are one. And so we can come together and worship the Lord together. The Bible says that men and women can gather as the church exercises governance. And so when the church gathers together for the purpose of fulfilling its mandate, there is no greater authority on earth that governs the church than the church coming together. According to Matthew 18 and 1 Corinthians 5, the assembled congregation, which includes both males and females, is the final authority on earth over the church's affairs as it is led by Christ. And that, what that means for us is, it means that every member of the church, whether you're a man or whether you're a woman, must be knowledgeable about Scripture if the church wishes to make scriptural decisions. And so when we come together for what we might call business meetings or family meetings in order to do the affairs, the spiritual affairs of the church, we must come together under the authority of God's Word. Third, the Bible says that men and women can pray and prophesy in our gatherings. This is the one that's going to get me in trouble. All right. What does this mean? We'll get to that in just a second. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 4 and 5. The scripture is on the screen behind you. You can look it up in your own Bible. It says that every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head, meaning Christ. But every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head, which means her husband, Or if she's single, it means Christ. For she is one and the same as the woman whose head is shaved. And so, before we get to what this means, let's just clarify. So if a wife prays or prophesies when the church is gathered, if she she needs, rather, to cover her physical head, maybe with a scarf, Maybe with a hat, maybe with her own long hair. This is done in order not to dishonor her spiritual head, which is her husband. But notice that in these verses, there is simply an assumption by Paul who is writing this, that a woman can pray or prophesy in church gatherings. So here's the $64 question, if you're that old and you know what that means. What does praying and prophesying in the church mean? I'll tell you. Praying and prophesying in the first century church, these were spoken expressions of faith that came from the congregation. Sometimes the Holy Spirit would spontaneously lead Christians to share something with the entire congregation. And sometimes the Holy Spirit would lead someone in the congregation to share something at the next public gathering, but he would do that, the Holy Spirit would do that earlier in the week. And the Christians who would do this, who would make an expression of their faith in a prayer or a statement, a, prophesy, a prophesying statement, they would do this under the leadership of the elders. And I'll get to this a little bit more in just a minute. Now, you might not realize this, but we do this on occasion here at this church. Sometimes on Sunday mornings, I'll ask the congregation to share what they're thankful for. I'll ask you, 
Who has God revealed himself to you as recently? And we'll hear from both men and women who will tell me that, and tell the congregation that they're thankful for their salvation. They're thankful for Jesus. They're thankful for their family. They're thankful for the, God's provisions in their life, and on and on and on. Both men and women express this publicly in church. And so we do this also on Wednesday nights. On Wednesday nights, we gather for Bible study and prayer, and in that setting, it's even more of an open interaction. And some of the most beneficial and edifying things spoken have come from the ladies in our congregation who have a depth of wisdom that flows from them, and not just them, but the men as well, but it flows from them to those that are present on Wednesday night, and they are a blessing to everyone there. Just ask anyone who comes on Wednesday night, and they will gladly tell you that it's not just the pastor, but it's one another blessing each other with God's wisdom and blessing each other with testimonies. And so let's get to the nuts and bolts of the whole thing. We know what prayer is. We know what it is when someone prays publicly. But when we think of prophesying, we usually think of foretelling the future. Like, I prophesy that so-and-so will be president-elect in two days, you know. We, we normally think of prophesying as foretelling the future. But prophesying in the first century church was, was much less about trying to foretell the future than it was about telling forth scriptural truths. And so here's what happened. When the church gathered in the first century to worship God, they would usually engage in a number of different activities, which we engage in as well. Sometimes partaking of the Lord's Supper, singing was a normal activity, the teaching of the elders slash pastors slash overseers. By the way, that's all one office, elder, pastor, overseer. So if you hear me use these terms, I'm referring to the same thing. King James, by the way, uses the word bishop instead of overseer. It's all the same office. It's the office of pastor. But there would be a teaching, a preaching, if you will, by the elders. And then they would usually have a time set aside for congregational praying and prophesying. And so members of the congregation would have the opportunity to speak about what God is doing in their lives or to pray for one another in the church. And so this was the congregational speaking and praying. It was a separate ministry than the elders' teaching ministry. However, everything that happens in worship is under the authority of the church's Elders, And that means that there was and is a very real possibility if someone were to speak something publicly to the entire congregation that was scripturally untrue, that that person may need to be ready for a public rebuke from the pastors. Because the pastor has a responsibility not to allow God's people to be misled. And so when men publicly prayed or prophesied at church worship gatherings, they were doing so under the authority of the elders. And when wives publicly prayed or prophesied at church worship gatherings, they were doing so under the authority of their husbands. And that is the reason for the 
different uh, responsibilities when it comes to head coverings. And so the praying and the prophesying, which could, be, could have been done by men or women, was always for the benefit of the congregation, as 1 Corinthians 14.3 says. It says, the one who prophesies speaks to people for edification, exhortation, and consolation. Next. The Bible says that men and women can both minister to children. You know, one of the most powerful ministries we have in our church is our children's ministry. Even if only one child is in attendance that day, that child is a potential future church leader. She may be a leader in mission someday. He may be a future pastor someday. And I would say that there, if any ministry is the most important ministry, I cannot think of anything more important than our ministry to children. Our children must be taught the Word of God. If there were to come a Sunday in which you and the other people that have been Christians for 50 years had to miss Sunday school, so be it, you'll survive. But children need to be taught God's Word at every opportunity. They haven't had 50 years with the Lord. They're new at this. And so we must always invest spiritually in our kids. We are always looking for men and women who want to help make our ministry to children more safe and more robust, more theologically sound, more dynamic. I want you to think about, in the Bible, one of the heroes of our faith. It's Paul's representative, Timothy. You know about Timothy? He helped Paul in the proclamation of the gospel. He helped Paul in the building up of the church. And it may have never happened if Timothy wasn't first grounded in his faith by his mother and his grandmother. The Bible says we can serve and teach kids. The Bible also says that men and women can serve God in countless other ways, including teaching women, including being a servant, almost anything. Almost. There is one role, however, in the church that Scripture reserves for men. It is the role of elder slash pastor slash overseer. Again, the same office. You see, the Bible gives a four-part job description for elders. Number one, elders provide for the church through biblical teaching. Titus 1.9 says, An elder must hold fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching so that he will be able to exhort in sound doctrine. That is the, one of the elders' role. Likewise, Ephesians 4.11 and 12 says that Jesus gives pastor teachers to his church for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. And so elders provide for the church through biblical teaching. Secondly, elders protect the church from falsehood. Titus 1.9 says an elder must refute those who contradict 2 Timothy 4, chapter 2 says to, to pastors to rebuke 
to reprove, to exhort with great patience and instruction. So not only do elders provide, not only do elders protect, but third, elders lead the church, and they do it by their example. 1 Peter 5.3 says, Elders must not lord over those given into their charge, but prove to be examples to the flock. And Hebrews 13.7 says to the congregation, Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. And so elders are to lead by example. And fourth, elders bear responsibility before God for the well-being of His church. James 3.1 says, Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. Hebrews 13.17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Look at those tasks that elders are called to do. They are called to provide, to protect, to lead, to bear responsibility. Does that remind you of anything? If you've been paying close attention in this series, it should. Because those are the responsibilities that God has built into every man. The pastorate is masculine at its very core. The role of elders is masculine at its very core. And based on that alone, we could rightfully conclude that only men should be pastors. But we could add to that the very fact that Jesus told or chose 12 apostles, all men, who would be leaders of his church and from whom, from whose teachings would come the scriptures. But the strongest evidence of the pastorate being restricted to males is the explicit teaching of Scripture. If you have your Bible, turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2. And we're going to walk through a few verses here. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, here's the setting. Paul was on likely his fourth missionary journey, of which we know very little about. And Paul left his trusted representative, Timothy, in the major city of Ephesus, one of the three biggest cities of the day. He left Timothy there so that Timothy could help the growing number of house churches there. And much of the book of 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, for that matter, focuses on church life and especially on church leadership and that's the context of 1 Timothy chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. We read in 1 Timothy 2, 11, A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. The word quietly does not actually mean complete silence, but rather it refers to her demeanor, her overall demeanor. In other words, she's not a loudmouth. She's not undercutting the teaching of the elders. She's not going against them. That would be inappropriate. And then in verse 12, we read this. Paul writes, as an apostle, by the way, But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. 
The word to teach and the words to exercise authority, these are infinitive verbs, present infinitive verbs, if you can go back to your grammar schooling. What that means is, Paul is saying this, I do not allow a woman to continually teach or to continually exercise authority over a man. Question, what position in the church continually teaches? And what position in the church continually exercises authority over others, including men? The answer is the elders. Paul is explicitly disallowing women to be elders slash pastors slash overseers. And here's the question, why? why? Why is Paul giving this instruction? I mean, is there something about the churches or the city of Ephesus that makes this directive very specific for that city and that culture and that time alone? Or is there maybe something about first century culture in general that makes it specific for that day? You know, all kinds of egalitarian and and feminist theologians with an agenda have speculated this to be the case. They usually say, well, here's the problem. There are all these female false teachers all over Ephesus. And if the church had female pastors, it would appear that the Christians and the false teachers were on the same team. Therefore, they claim, the restriction on female pastors was culturally based and it's not normative for us today. It's okay for women to be pastors today. Here's the problem with that view. Paul explicitly tells us why he doesn't allow women to be pastors. And it has nothing to do with the culture of the day. If it had to do with the culture of the day, or or if it had to do with false teachers, Paul would have said in the next verse, this is because of the culture. Or he would have said in the next verse, this is because of the false teachers. He says neither. Paul gives two reasons for not allowing female pastors, and both of them are based on eternal theological truths which makes this command eternally applicable. Verse 13, reason number one. For it was Adam who was first created and not Eve. Paul goes all the way back to creation. Before the fall, by the way, he goes all the way back to creation as his number one reason for not allowing female pastors Women are not allowed to be pastors because it was Adam who was first created and then Eve. Simply put, God created men to be the spiritual leaders. And so if they are spiritually qualified, men provide and protect and lead and bear responsibility for God's church. Reason number two is in the very next verse, verse 14. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Again, when Satan deceived Eve into sinning, and then Eve convinced Adam to sin, Satan was trying to distort and destroy God's created order. He was trying to flip it around. But he did that unsuccessfully. God would not have it. You see, there are some things that are simply eternally true because God made it that way. For example, 
Humans, not animals, are in charge of this world. God made it that way. It has always been true. It will always be true. There are two and only two sexes. God made it that way. It has always been true and it always will be true. Men are the spiritual leaders of their wives. God made it that way. It has always been true. It will always be true. And men are the spiritual leaders of God's family, the church. It has always been true. It will always be true. Look at the next verse. Actually, chapter 3, verse 1 of 1 Timothy. Paul gives qualifications for those that would be overseers, or again, elders or pastors. And he says this, It is a trustworthy statement, if any man aspires to the office of overseer. It is a fine work he desires to do. Verse 2, an overseer then must be above reproach. A one-woman man is literally the way it's translated. Temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, and able to teach. This is a qualification, being able to teach, that you won't find for deacons. Why? If a deacon can teach, fantastic. That's wonderful. But an elder must be able to teach. And he must desire to teach God's Word. But that elder must also be a one-woman man. He must have one and only one, no more than one woman in his heart. He must be devoted to her and no other. Verse 3, not addicted to wine or pugnacious. What's pugnacious? It means he doesn't get in a lot of fights. Maybe every once in a while, but not a lot. Not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. There are a boatload of pastors who fail that one right now. They are in it for the money. And they ought to be ashamed of themselves. A pastor must be free from the love of money. Verse 4, he must be one who manages his own household well. Again, he's the leader of his home, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? Great question. Verse 6, he must not be a new convert so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. Cannot be a new convert. I've seen many failures in that regard as well. Verse 7, and he must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall into reproach. Reproach means everybody in the community looks down upon you, doesn't like you, has reason not to like you because your behavior is so abhorrent. A pastor can't be that way. So that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Now, what should our response be to these truths? Well, let me just repeat something I mentioned earlier. God is sovereign. And God knew what he was doing when he made you a man or a woman. He knew what he was doing when he designed you to serve him. And so here's the application that I'd ask you to put into your life today. 
There's no place for discontentment or jealousy in the church. There's no place for it. You know, I've met both men and women who are very discontented and jealous of others because others seem to have a more, I don't know, a a more glamorous standing in the church. I've met women who live their entire lives bitter at God because they wanted to be a pastor. And I have no doubt that many of them met all of the moral qualifications of the pastorate. I have no doubt that many of them were excellent students and teachers of God's Word. But I'm pretty sure about this one thing. Harboring resentment at God is no way for the children of God to live their entire lives. If you're upset with your role, whatever it is, in the church, don't be. Should a thumb get mad at an elbow because it's not an elbow? Of course not. That's ridiculous. Should an eye say, I wish I was a hand? Should a foot say, I wish I was an eye so I could see? Of course not. Every part of your body, hopefully, is happy with itself and functions together for the benefit of the whole. And that's what I would ask you to do. I'd ask you to accept who God made you to be. Accept, if you want to call it any type of limitation, accept your limitations. Long time ago, I had to accept the fact that I would never be seven feet tall and playing in the NBA. I've nevertheless become as heavy as a seven foot tall man. But, for lack of ability, I can never grow past what I am. Accept who you are. As a man, as a woman, as a servant, as a, as a singer, as a teacher, whatever it is, however it is you serve God, accept that. Ask God to show you how to serve Him best. I want to leave you with this one final thought. You know that the Bible says that we're saved by grace. Remember that we also serve by grace. It is a gracious act of God that He allows any one of us to do anything for Him. Let's know that in our hearts. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you've made me the way that I am with all of my imperfections and uh, the, you've given me certain abilities but not others. And Father, you've shown me over the years how I think I can best serve you. And Father, I thank you for the, the joy that I get in serving you to the best of my ability in the way that you've called me to. Father, I pray for those that are seeking how they can serve you, that you'd reveal that to them and put them on that path, Lord, so they can have that joy of serving you and loving it and just enjoying it. And Father, I pray that there be no bitterness toward you, no bitterness toward others, no jealousy, no discontentment, because we're not serving you in a, in a different way. Father, thank you.
for making us men and women who simply serve you. You are our king, and we are your subjects. We love you, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.